Hey, Chris, how you doing? Good, Jefferson. How are you? Well, as far as I can tell, I'm flu-free. Uh-huh. I'm healthy, and I'm feeling strong and blessed and privileged and lucky and knocking on wood. Uh-huh. Yeah, well. I, I think my dad got it, by the way. Oh, really? How's he doing? He's okay. He was sick as a dog and was laid up in bed, had mm-hmm. a bunch of the symptoms, had symptoms that didn't seem to be cold or flu symptoms, and mm-hmm. the and he couldn't get a test. And he's... 80, yeah. you know, he's 80 years old. So he, he didn't get a test because the federal government failed to act quickly enough to make sure there were right. enough tests. And, yep. and so I have, uh, so I have not only analytical disagreement, but also anger at the current presidential mm-hmm. administration. But luckily right now, dad seems to be doing fine and we he quarantined quickly. And so I don't think he got anybody else sick as far as I can tell. Good. So glad to hear that. We can hope. Maybe, maybe he did give it to us and we didn't, uh, we didn't see, but we didn't touch him. We didn't touch that guy. Uh, How's the campaign going? Uh, you know, it's crazy. There's just no way to contact voters. <laughs> yeah, how are you doing it? How are you managing the campaign? Now, it's one thing, you know, somebody's running for Secretary of State, right? It's a statewide right. campaign. You're not doing a lot of door knocking. Yeah, you're doing some house parties, but most of that stuff is trying to get endorsements, trying to raise a bunch of money, and then trying to do TV ads to let people know yeah. just who the heck you are, because most people haven't heard of the Secretary of State candidates. In a metro race, it's much more close in, right? I mean, there right. is an expectation that you're going to be interacting with some people. How are you managing that? Uh, we're trying to move the house parties online and do Zoom meetings yep. instead. We are talking to Chris Smith, candidate for Metro District 5, with his dog in the background. During this time of great crisis, there is an election going on, and we want to make sure that people, including people who aren't going to have a chance to see these candidates face-to-face as much or be in the same room with them, do have a chance up close and personal to get to understand who they are, what they stand for, and what the puts and takes, what the choices are. Chris Smith, thanks for being with us. Well, thank you for the opportunity, Jefferson. Who are you and why are you running? So I am a citizen activist. I've been kicking around policy circles in Portland for the last 20 years, working at everything from the neighborhood level to the city level uh, to the metro level, working primarily on transportation, uh, but also land use issues, campaign finance. And this seemed like a, a particularly good fit for my skills for Metro District 5. At my best, I consider myself a nerd. More often, at my second best, what I am is a, an advocate and bloviator on behalf of nerds. Is it fair to say, would you characterize yourself as a nerd? Do you view that as a red badge of courage or a scarlet letter? Well, I tend to use the word policy wonk, but uh, I'll take nerd. That's fine. <laughs> That's fair. And I think we should prepare. I, I'm totally down to get nerdy or to get wonky if you so choose. And the old debate between the hacks and the wonks, an old article that said that's the real division in government is between the people who are figuring out power and the people who are figuring out policy. I, I will acknowledge one of my own biases, and that is to try to get power to policy. So the hacks work on behalf of and for the wonks rather than the other way around. Where do you want to start? You want to start with transportation? That's one of your areas of expertise and interest. Sure, let's do that. So um, I have spent the last couple of years uh, trying to take ODOT to task over the uh, Rosequater Freeway expansion. Uh, I was actually the person who convened the group that became No More Freeways, uh, but I've been working on transportation for the last two decades as a neighborhood transportation chair, uh, serving on the board of Portland Streetcar, uh, did a stint on TPAC at Metro, which is the Transportation Policy Alternatives Committee, which is you know, the, the gathering of the wonks to, uh, to work on transportation policy. 
What are the biggest mistakes right now that Metro is making or has made in the past? I don't mean ever, but let's say the last five, 10 years, maybe on transportation planning. Well, I, I think the fact that we're continuing to expand the freeway system, you know, even as the, the planet is literally burning in some cases, uh, we have to radically shift uh, how we get around uh, a lot more buses, a lot more cycling, a lot more walking, uh, and a lot less driving. And we don't have the policies to do that. Even the new transportation measure that they may or may not be putting on the November ballot uh, only reduces uh, the wonky term is VMT, vehicle miles traveled. Uh, that measure says it would reduce uh, VMT by 25 million miles driven every year. That sounds like a huge number, but you have to look at what the denominator is. And uh, the number of miles driven in the region every year is seven and a half billion. Uh, so 25 million is only one third of one tenth of one percent. And of course, the greenhouse gases uh, are directly linked to the miles driven. So. Uh, transportation is the largest sector of greenhouse gas emissions in the region, somewhere between 40 and 42 percent, and it's going up instead of going down. So, you know, climate is one of the major reasons that I'm running. The city of Portland is about to declare a climate emergency. Uh, I've been working on uh, trying to do things about climate for the last couple decades before it was cool, uh, and I'd like to get to Metro Council where I can have a bigger impact. Who doesn't have enough power? And let me give you that context or some context for that question with respect to transportation planning. Sometimes what's going on, of course, is a battle of ideas. Maybe the best idea wins, but maybe the best idea doesn't win. And when that's the case, it's usually because of the power analysis. It's usually because somebody, because of their dough, because of their microphone, because of their relationships, they are able to have an outsized voice relative to the caliber of their notion, their ideas, their motives, and their objectives. Who has too little power in the transportation debate? Well, in this debate, I'd say the voters of the region. There are three governments the, that have a big footprint in the Portland region that are not directly accountable to the voters. Those are ODOT, they've already mentioned, the Port of Portland, and TriMet. And all of those have boards that are appointed by the governor and approved by the state senate. So you know, a state senator in Southern Oregon literally has more say about who's on the TriMet board, for example, than a voter in our region does. Uh, I've been tangling with all three of those governments at different times. We've, we've talked about ODOT and the freeways. You know, I oppose the Port of Portland when they try to put a propane terminal uh, out on the Columbia uh, successfully in that case, also helped save 800 acres of habitat in West, Highland, West Hayden Island that uh, the port wanted to turn into a marine terminal that we don't need. Uh, and TriMet, you know, the, the challenge with TriMet is not so much they do bad things as they just don't have a big enough vision for the role they're going to need to take on with respect to climate change and changing how we move around the region. You know, recently, TriMet general manager was on record favoring the freeway expansions, uh, and they just see a steady, you know, kind of 2% per year increase in bus service not the radical transformation that we're going to need. Yeah, TriMet has seen, in your view, are they on the wrong side of this? That Are they too much or just in cahoots with the business associations, the building trades, and the folks who generally just want to say build, baby, build? And if you think TriMet is going the wrong way, what do you think has to be done with the TriMet board about that? You know, the, the TriMet, TriMet is, I think, stuck in a model that has been reasonably successful for them in terms of Kicking out a new light rail line every, you know, five to ten to fifteen years—it's very depending on what the appetite of the federal government is to produce money. And you know, right now uh, they're all wrapped up in trying to get Southwest Corridor funded, uh, which 
a project that could be better designed, but as part of uh, you know building out a regional rail network, which I'm generally supportive of. But you know they can't get out of the mindset of this is how we progress things as we build a new light rail line every decade or so. Uh, to you know to deal with climate change, we're going to have to deploy a lot more bus service in the next ten years. You know we've only got ten years until the International Panel on Climate Change says that we have to basically take about half the carbon out of the economy. Uh, in transportation, that would mean you know getting half the drivers off the road and getting folks uh, mainly into buses, a lot on bicycles, I hope, but um, definitely a, a big share on, on buses. And TriMet just doesn't see that happening. They're not telling us what it would take to do that. They just seem happy to continue along in the same old formula they've used. I want to move it to a stupid question. We're talking to Chris Smith, candidate for Metro District 5. Stupid question. What the heck is Metro? <laughs> well, that's not a stupid question. I think a lot of voters probably aren't sure what Metro is about. So Metro uh, is a unique thing. It's the only elected regional government in the country. So uh, I think we could be a little bit proud that we figured out that we needed that. And it focuses on some interesting jobs. It's got uh, all the regional level of land use and transportation planning for the region, and that includes uh, all the federal transportation dollars that flow into transportation have to go through Metro. Uh, it has all of the visitor venues, uh, so people might think of you know the convention center, the expo center, the performing arts center downtown, and you know probably beloved to a lot of voters, the zoo. All of those are in Metro's portfolio. It also has all of the solid waste management in the region. So, you know, the, the garbage and recycling gets picked up to your curb. Uh, probably in a lot of cases goes through a metro transfer station and then gets trucked out to, uh, to eastern Oregon to go into a landfill for the, the garbage and through a variety of channels for the recycling. And it has parks and natural areas uh, at a regional level. So uh, metro has built up a pretty good relationship with the voters around acquiring natural areas preserving habitat, also making natural areas accessible uh, to people who want to go out and enjoy that, and then partnering with the, the 24 cities and three counties in their jurisdiction to help build parks within the urbanized area. So that's the basket of services the Metro has. Visited Detroit on this ambassador's trip, and I saw the impact. Maybe this will help amplify sort of the importance of Metro, at least in my version of it, and went and visited Detroit, and it's a city gutted. And when you hear, when we got a chance to hear and learn and even do some additional research about the background of Detroit, what was happening was people were leaving the city. Oh, maybe I don't want to pay those city taxes. Maybe I don't want to have to deal with city traffic. I'll move out to the suburbs. And then moving out to the suburbs, yeah, they weren't paying those city taxes. They weren't paying those city fees. And all of a sudden, the city had a hard time doing anything. And by the way, that impacted the suburbs also because they were just free riding on the metro area and the whole metro area relied upon a rambunctious or at least somewhat sustainable Detroit. You think us having a metro level, a regional level government is a critically important thing, yeah? I do. One of the things it does is keep us from sprawling like you just uh, described. So we have an urban growth boundary and part of metro's uh, land use planning portfolio is to reevaluate every four or five years if that needs to expand or not. We have a state mandate to have 20-year land supply for both housing and uh, and industry. And I want to make sure we come back and talk about housing because that's an area that Metro has been pulled into recently in another key plank of my campaign. <clears throat> um, but you know, the, the UGB basically makes us think carefully about what happens inside and you know, keeps us from sprawling out onto that key farmland that we want to keep productive. Other stupid question, where's District 5? 
So District 5 is ironically defined by freeways. So on the uh, on the west side, it's everything north of Highway 26 and the I-405 freeway loop. So it includes um, you know most of downtown on the west side. On the east side, it's everything north of I-84, and it runs from uh, Cedar Mill out in Washington County. So we have a tiny slice of Washington County. Everything else is in the city of Portland, and to the east, it goes as far as northeast 122nd. Let's get to housing. And oh, no, didn't mean to cut you off. Go ahead. Yeah, it really is a sacrifice zone for fossil fuel. So if you think about it, we've got the levees on the Columbia that are going to be under more pressure as we have rising Columbia River levels as a result of heavier rains due to climate change. Uh, it's got the freeways I've talked about, including I-5 that bisects it, which lead to some huge air quality problems within the district. It's got the central energy hub at Linton, so you've got all those fossil fuel tanks that are basically a bomb waiting to go off uh, in an earthquake. And you've got the oil trains that are you know, headed to Zenith, which is part of that central energy hub. Uh, and you've got the auto scrapyards in places like uh, Cully, where we had you know, a mountain of tires that burned a couple of years ago and we were forced to evacuate low-income neighbors. So it, it's really bearing uh, a lot of the negative impacts of fossil fuels. And say again, your southern border is the Banfield, your southern border is 84? 84 on the east side, 26 on the west side. Got it. So it's essentially, like, think about it as north, northeast Portland, plus a bunch of downtown and also and also on the other side of the, on the, on the west side of the Willamette River. Uh, that means you are the, uh, you are the district that I grew up in for what it's worth, the district in East Portland where I live in, where I live now, uh, and also, by the way, the district where our office exists. Those three places aren't that close together, right? I mean, it's a, it's mm-hmm. 10 miles. Between between the office and my house, so it's a big geographic area. How do you campaign in an area like that for an office like Metro? Not everybody's paying attention to who the heck their Metro counselor is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this tends to be a pretty low information race. About uh, typically in a, in a Metro primary, uh, one third of the ballots will undervote the Metro race. Uh, so you know we're working, uh, particularly now at the time of the virus, doing a lot of social media. Um, you know, working my personal network through things like house parties that are moving online now. So they're, you know, they're Zoom parties rather than house parties. Um, so, yeah, it's kind of the traditional means, but think about remapping them online. Um, social media is going to be really crucial for us, I think. In a bunch of those areas, I guess every single area, but I will say particularly North Portland and East Portland tend to bear a lot of the brunt of a lot of our challenges as a city. Let's talk about housing, particular impacts on housing. What should we do about it? What are we getting wrong? Well, you know, it's interesting because housing has not traditionally been a function for Metro uh, other than doing, you know, the kind of UGB level, very high level uh, look at land. Do you think it was an overreach? you think Metro shouldn't have touched it? Nope. I think uh, ultimately they had to. Um, and you know, two ways that Metro is now getting involved in housing. Uh, a year and a half ago, they did an affordable housing bond measure, and I was proud to have been a member of the Speaker's Bureau for that, raised $600 million to go towards building uh, subsidized affordable housing. And this year, of course, they just put a ballot measure on the May ballot, same ballot all beyond, which is for services related to housing. So things like rental assistance, wraparound services for people who are on the street to try and get them off the street. Um, That will produce, well, depending on how our economy does in the next few years, before the the recession, it was uh, estimated to produce $250 million a year, uh, which is a very healthy number to to, really deal with the problem we have with people uh, on the street or at risk of being on the street. 
And, you know, Metro got pulled into that basically because two things. One is neither of those problems stops at a city or a county line. They are truly regional problems. And Metro has in its charter the ability to basically say, you know, this is a problem of regional significance. We're going to get into it. I think they were uh, very appropriate to assert that authority in both these cases. Uh, but I think the real issue is that the advocates recognized that Metro was the only body that could raise money regionally. So the ability to you know, raise revenue from all the, the and that's a big deal because so much of the so much of the challenge isn't happening just in Portland or just in Multnomah County. So much of it is right. in Washington County. So much of it is in Clackamas County. I used to get I used to even say to advocates, one of your opponents, a Cameron Witten, who would you know stand outside City Hall and I'd be like, yeah, it's it, you know you can protest City Hall, but if you want to look at who's actually paying their freight, City Hall is paying more of their freight than Clackamas County or Washington County or Beaverton or Oregon City. So you might want to protest some other folks as well. You know, now that Metro is into housing, that's a new area for them. They don't have all the policy background that they have in transportation and land use, and that's one of the places uh, I think I can help. You know, I've spent the last 10 years on the Portland Planning and Sustainability Commission, and during that time, we have basically touched or rewritten every single housing policy in the city of Portland, whether that's inclusionary zoning, you know, better housing by design, which is the way to build, you know, apartment buildings that have more units so we have more space to house people. Uh, or even you know, residential infill, which is at city council right now, which is about in, you know, in our traditional neighborhoods now allowing duplexes, triplexes, quads, so that we can uh, create housing for more people in every part of our city. Uh, so I'm proud of that. and I'd like to take that expertise to Metro and, and help with the policy work there. This is a hotly contested race, a bunch of candidates. That includes Cameron Witten, who's been a longtime advocate, has been an executive director of the Q Center, Mayor Pivoto, who's been a hero, a heroine in clean air in our region. Karen Spencer, local business person who also has experience and expertise. Mary Nolan, who was the House Majority Leader in the Oregon Legislature. I mean, these are some heavyweight, real candidates for this metro race. Why are you better than them? Uh, so this is crowded because it happened very suddenly when Sam Chase, who was cruising to re-election, decided to jump over into the uh, the race to replace Nick Fish, who sadly passed away beginning of the year. So this became an open race in early January. We all kind of piled in. I think I have a unique set of skills and experience uh, particularly suited to this job. So I've worked in transportation. I've worked in land use you know, 10 years on the Portland Planning and Sustainability Commission. Uh, I've served on two key advisory committees at Metro is on both PPAC, the Transportation Policy Advisory Committee, and MPAC, which is the Metro Policy Advisory Committee, which is kind of planning commission for the region, if you will. Uh, I've been a budget advisor for the city of Portland, so I know how government budgets work. Uh, I think my resume is you know, way more rounded out and uh, targeted towards what Metro does than any of the other candidates. I think people who look at this race, who pay attention for more than a moment or two, will trust your values. I think they'll trust your brain. I think I think they'll trust your knowledge set. I think they'll trust your motives. Anything else that leadership requires, anything else that you need to prove? You know, I think it requires persistence. You know, something like the Port of Portland. Um, you know, you, you can't let your guard down. You have to watch what they're doing all the time. Um, I've been willing to stick with it and you know, work on these causes for uh, you know, two decades or more. Um, I, I think one value we haven't talked about that I'd like to touch on is campaign finance reform. Sure. Uh, you know, I wrote, I chaired the committee that wrote the Measure Six study for City Club back in 2000, which was the first ballot measure around public campaign finance in the state. Uh, it passed in forums and passed statewide. 
But that's where my you know, values around campaign finance got set, that we really don't want big checks uh, influencing our campaigns. Uh, I am voluntarily in my campaign limiting myself to $500 contributions because the voters in this district have twice voted uh, for those limits, once for the county, once for the city. Courts have said those aren't enforceable, but I'm still listening to voters. Uh, I'm the only candidate uh, in this race that's self-limiting that way. And I'd like to bring some kind of public campaign finance to Metro, uh, a jurisdiction where we don't have that available yet. Appreciate that. I want to get back also, though, to my previous question. Because, again, like I've been thinking about this. What does it take to win? What does it take to serve? And it's been a question I've been wrestling with, heck, I guess, for years and years and years. Uh, I, I was a mentor is sort of official mentor of many and uh, I guess one mentor of mine for a while who said that leadership takes multiple things. It takes speed and it takes weight. He might have said a third thing, but one of the things I need to work on is my listening skills, which I've been working very hard on. But anyway, they, and I think that in terms of your processing speed and what you know, you know, people will be there. Is there anything you need to prove to people about your leadership ability? Anything, if you were going to hear a critique of yours or if you've had to respond to a critique of you What's that critique and what's your response? Well, yeah, I think I got some critiques after my 2008 city council campaign where I was one of uh, five candidates running under voter-owned elections, uh, the previous city uh, take on publicly financed campaigns. Uh, and what I got told is that you know I, I was not a great campaigner, so I've tried to work a lot harder at that uh, this time around, put myself out there a lot more. I, you know, I am a policy walk. Uh, you know, you talked about policy and power. I've, I've spent my career more on the policy side of that. Yeah. And, uh, learning how to present myself to the voters, hopefully in a more forceful way uh, than I have. So what that. have you tried to get better at? When you say better campaigner, you say, yeah, try to present yourself better, trying to be more out there. Say more about what that means. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm fundamentally an introvert. Uh, I can, you know, go on and talk about policy for hours, but, uh, you know, put me in a room of people that I don't know, and uh, I, I tend to be more of a wallflower. So I've had to very deliberately, uh, you know, try and, uh, get past that and express myself more and be willing to talk to you know, kind of a cold open with a new person I haven't met before. I am fascinated by this, and I want to delve into it a little bit more. Introverts running for office, and I'll say a few reasons why. Great Harvard Business Review uh, series about introverts in leadership, and that very often introverts can be very effective leaders. It is harder for introverts to be elected officials because it's harder for an introvert to do all the things that might be useful to win that election. In fact, it could be an argument. It's one of the reasons I like the idea of sortition, of sort of jury selection, of lotteries for power, not citizen assemblies, not just elected offices. And by the way, I'm joined by Aristotle in preferring those or at least liking that idea. How do you overcome the introvert thing? How do you use it as a strength or how do you make sure it doesn't hinder you from winning this race? Uh, well, you know, use it as a strength. I think I've done that in my policy career. In terms of politics, um, you know, I'm not sure I know the answer to that. I know yeah. um, that, that I'm trying hard and working at it. I think the fact that we're moving online for Lives Campaign probably works to my advantage. I've come out of a corporate career where I manage global teams, so I'm you know used to being on video conference calls, uh, you know, for hours out of the week. So you know, a, a Zoom house party. Is probably a more comfortable medium for me than my, <laughs> some of my competitors. But uh, uh, ready. you've been preparing for this for years. <laughs> what are, you talked about campaign finance reform? We talked a little about housing. Anything else you wanted to add to housing? It is, you know, we're facing a public health uh, 
global crisis. We've been facing a housing crisis for some years now. Anything that Metro has done wrong, or you think it's really just kind of continue some of their current recognition? Are there pieces of this current housing bond they've put out that you think are flawed or insufficient? Uh, well, hey, let's distinguish the role that Metro is going to have. I mean, Metro, I don't think, is ever going to be a direct housing provider or a housing services provider. Uh, they do a little bit in transit-oriented development where they they do get behind some housing development, but that's a small piece. Uh, you know, it'll still be the counties and the cities that are the direct providers. I think what Metro can do, what Metro does well, is play the role of convener, uh, data aggregator, and policy analysis. So what I hope Metro will do, particularly with the the housing services bond is, you know, you know, do their basic fiduciary responsibility, making sure that the money they're collecting from the voters is being spent well. So there'll be audits and, and those kind of things. But I hope they can look at how, you know, each county and the set of service providers in the county is using it, find the best practices, distribute those best practices, and make sure as a region uh, we learn and are as effective as we can be. I think that's the key role Metro can play. What do you think is going to decide this race? Obviously, people casting votes, but you think there's any particular question that's going to be answered, any particular power dynamic that's going to play out? What do you think are the most important uh, decision-making dynamics that are going to play out? You know, I think it's just the question of, you know, uh, can we get the voters to actually hear about this yeah. uh, before May 19th in the election? I think there's going to be one debate. Uh, even that doesn't seem to be settled. So uh, the risk is it'll be a, a pretty low-information race. Um some of that's outside my control. We've, one of the things we've been talking about, because trying to give a window to listeners who might want to run for office, who have run for office before and want to you know, continue to sort of dance with how we should do this better, uh, people who have or might someday work as staffers or be the uh, committee member for the League of Conservation Voters or the League of Women Voters, other folks who get engaged in these races in deep ways. Uh, about that endorsement process, what have you learned from the endorsement process? You went through it before when you were a candidate for city council. What are the endorsements you really wanted? In, and you can talk about personal endorsements if you want, but I'm talking also organizational endorsements. What are those that you really wanted? Anything you didn't want that you really wanted that you didn't get? Uh, yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the endorsements I've gotten. So the big personal one I've gotten is former Metro President David Bragdon, who's been a supporter of my campaign from day one. Uh, really grateful for that. In terms of the organizational endorsements, uh, the one I'm proudest of is to get uh, the Sunrise Movement here in Portland. So that's you know the youth climate movement who, who basically looked at this baby boomer and says he's our best shot to deal with climate change. They're like, okay, boomer. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> uh, this also, boomer's okay. <laughs> sorry, go ahead. I uh, was also proud to share the, the Street Trust Action Fund. So that. Uh, with another candidate. It was a joint endorsement, but recognizes my work over the last couple of decades on active transportation. Uh, the one I would have liked that I didn't get uh, was OLCV, uh, and that went to uh, Mary Pevado, who, as you said, has been a hero in the air quality world, and uh, she's been a great partner uh, in the freeway fight. So, you know, Mary and I are, are definitely friendly competitors in this race, but, uh, but that's one I worked hard for and, and would have liked to have gotten. Who's your least favorite candidate that you're running against? Uh, you know, I, I respect every single person that's in this race. Uh, I'm not going to answer that question. <laughs> Sorry, Who's your second favorite? If you don't win, who do you support? <laughs> uh, well, you know, Mary and I are, Mary uh, Pevito and I are both running in the climate lane. So I'll say that I think it's important to have a climate champion um, in that seat. But what? I think I've got, a, you know, Mary brings a lot of uh, 
a lot of work on air quality and climate. She doesn't have the housing experience that I have. So I think I'm, I'm kind of a twofer. Um, so while I respect her, her work on you know, air quality and climate, I think I can bring more to the council. Okay. I, you, you've corrected me on something that I need to say thank you for and also be embarrassed by. I have known the person that I have called Mary Pivato for 10 years, and I've called her that for 10 years. You're confident about her pronunciation, and I'm an idiot. Uh, you know, I, I may be wrong. So let's, no, I'm not let's saying you're wrong. Pivoteau, Pivoteau. <laughs> Mary P as distinct from Mary right. N. That's What's the right. dumbest question you've received during this campaign other than how to pronounce an opponent's last name? Um, you know, I, I get a lot of you know, questions about what Metro is about. I don't think those are dumb. I think it's natural that voters don't uh, understand that. Um, you know, I think any question that a voter asks is reasonable, so I'm not going to characterize them as dumb. Anything I should have asked you that I didn't? Uh, you know, I think we have covered everything I wanted to talk about. I appreciate the opportunity very much. Chris Smith, I'm... I just want to say one thing, and that is a word of gratitude. And I can extend it. It's, I haven't said it to every candidate. I'm not trying to endorse anybody. I just want to say I am grateful for your running in this race and also grateful for your service. And I mean your activism for years. For people who like the city of Portland, who people who like the idea of have regional government, the reason that we have that, and I'm not even prepared to say one of the reasons, I'm going to say the primary reason we have that is a coalition of people who are willing to get nerdy, who identify themselves saying, I want to do a little bit to help. I'm going to learn a little bit more. I'm going to do a little bit more. I'm going to make our town a little bit better. I'm going to try to make our country a little bit better. Those folks, that's what gives democracy a chance. Chris, you've been that kind of person. I'd call him a priceless person for years now. And thank you for sharing some of your time with us. Well, thank you so much, Jefferson. I appreciate it. You're listening to X-Ray, part of our 2020 vision series to try to give you the information you need, give candidates the platforms that they need. So even in, maybe especially in these challenging times, folks have a chance to participate in the discussion of democracy. We appreciate you. And radio's yours.